Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this talk sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. My name is Sean Honesty. I serve as the events coordinator here at IWP, as well as a recent MA grad. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel welcome to speak to myself or another staff member at the conclusion of the event, or visit us at iwp.edu. To support the work of IWP, please visit us at iwp.edu forward slash donate. We'd like to take this time to thank all of our sponsors that support our work, and a great way to do so uh, to further uh, support the work of IWP is sponsoring lecture events just like this. And you can do so by uh, purchasing sponsorship tickets on our Eventbrite page, which are found on every single one of our events. Today we'll be hearing from Mr. Henry Sokolsky and Mr. Ezra Cohen, who will deliver a lecture entitled, Overclassification, How Bad Is It and What's the Fix? Mr. Henry D. Sokolsky is the Executive Director of the Nonproliferation Policy Education Center, a Washington-based nonprofit organization founded in 1994 to promote a better understanding of the strategic weapons proliferation issues among policymakers, scholars, and the media. Mr. Sokolsky also serves as a Senior Fellow for Nuclear Security Studies at the University of California at San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. Throughout his career, Mr. Sokolsky has worked as a consultant on nuclear weapons proliferation issues to the intelligence community's National Intelligence Council, received a congressional appointment to the Deutsche Proliferation Commission, served as a member of the CIA's Senior Advisory Panel, and was a member of the Commission on the Prevention of Weapons of Mass Destruction, Proliferation, and Terrorism. Our second panelist, Mr. Ezra Cohen, was appointed by President Donald Trump on January 11, 2021, to a three-year term on the Public Interest Declassification Board, or PIDB, and was designated to serve as chair for a two-year term that ended on January 10, 2023. Prior to his appointment to the PIDB, Mr. Cohen served in senior leadership positions at the Department of Defense and within the intelligence community, most recently as the Acting Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security and Director for Defense Intelligence in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. In this role, he exercised authority, direction, and control over the defense, intelligence enterprise, and combat support agencies. Additionally, he served as the principal civilian intelligence advisor to the Secretary of Defense on all military intelligence-related matters, including signals, human, and geospatial intelligence, sensitive activities and reconnaissance, counterintelligence, law enforcement, and security. With that, please welcome Mr. Henry Sokolsky and Mr. Ezra Cohen. The only thing that makes this audience look large is its distance from me. <laughs> if you want, you can't come up further. Um, first of all, can everyone hear me? That's important question. Um, it's an honor to be with you, Ezra. Ezra has, a, has a, a real position working these issues on the Public Interest Declassification Board, and I'm, I'm inclined to think that, that the existence of this board, which was created by Congress, is itself too much of a secret. And I hope today anyone here who is a student or thinking of being a student or is interested in things related to intelligence will no longer think that it's a classified secret. You know? 
We need to know more about the board. Today, we're going to talk about something that I have some personal connection with, and that is the sins of overclassification. Now, generally, when you study national security and intelligence, what you learn is that there are secrets, and we need to protect them. Usually, the education stops there, and you leave or you go into government, and that is your thought. It's not a complete thought. The complete thought is it is quite possible to harm national security by overdoing classification. And I don't know if that's taught yet, but it needs to be. And if you serve long enough in government, you'll have the good luck to discover how that works. Let me give you some examples uh, shortly, but in my own case, let's just say I had a study that was done by people without clearances about stuff that was, you know, 50 years old, and it became something that could not be released, I was told. Now, without getting much into that, misery loves company, right? So I started to talk to other people about my problem. And if any of you have been deathly ill with something like cancer, and you go around talking to people about your problem, you quickly discover your problem is nothing compared to their problem or someone they know. And exactly that happened. And I started to actually stop thinking about my problem and got worried about our problem. What is the problem? What if I was to tell you that we cannot, in many instances, share information necessary on the front lines in places previously like Afghanistan so that we can know where to fire the guns with our allies, in this case the Afghanis, because we can't share the pictures that we need and we can get from, let's say, our government with foreigners. All right? Now, this is a real-world example. What if I was to tell you that we probably need to invest a lot more in space because that may be the last you know, comparative advantage we have with regard to China and Russia. But the Space Force that we've created has to deal with 1,700 special access programs, which is roughly a program that only a handful of people are read into. That's another way of saying our Space Force can't know what it's doing. It can't manage the programs that are under its purview. What if I was to tell you that Congress can't understand what some of the most expensive, important military satellite programs are about because none of their staff is cleared to take it in, and they take briefs frequently by themselves. Now, I don't know if you know of anyone senior to you 
uh, uh, who might not have all the information they need to appraise something, but I can assure you, if you stay in government long enough, you will encounter these people and they'll be called your boss. And that's the reason bosses that have any brains have staff with them, because they know their limits. So we've got a problem. Uh, I think in addition, uh, another favorite example would be uh, you cannot share as a private firm information with the U.S. government uh, that might have military implications uh, unless you're willing to make sure that from that point on, every time you want to share it with someone else, you first get clearance from the U.S. government to share that. The upshot is most of the innovative firms don't want to do business with the U.S. government. And they open themselves up, once they insulate themselves from the U.S. government, to foreign investors, including some of our adversaries. That isn't the way we wanted any of this to work. So that's just a taste of some of the problems I could go on. In this report that's outside, overclassification, how bad is it, what's the fix, you can read more. This is the result of meeting over a dozen times with about 150 other people who had better stories than I did. And we classified, or I should say categorized, the problems in, in 12 different units. And there's an overview. Now, to be honest, I don't think this would have had any impact whatsoever, but something very bizarre occurred. The Wall Street Journal decided it wanted to do an exclusive article covering it. That was an act of God, and in policy making that doesn't normally happen, but it did. And as a result, there was a push, and there now is announced some proposed legislation. I don't know how long this moment will last, that is to say interest in this. The executive branch is interested in doing some executive orders on overclassification. We don't know exactly uh, when or if portions of those executive orders might be issued, but it's in the air. Uh, what people normally say is that this is hopeless. The more I dwell in this area, I, I, part of me thinks it is. <laughs> but part of me thinks it isn't. One of the things this report makes clear is that a central axis of the, of, of the, of the problem has to do with what are called classification guidebooks also declassification documents. There are nearly 2,100 of these. They are, in some cases, contradictory, in many cases vague, and you can well imagine that if you are an official, your job is to say you're following the law, and so you're given a choice. You can read these guidebooks and try to follow them, or you can just hit as high a classification as you hope you can get away with and move on and have lunch. You can well imagine how things end up. As a result, there is a bow wave of material that just disappears. First order of business is to figure out how to reduce the number of guidebooks. If this had never been attempted or done, I'd say, well, Good luck. I've made another academic point. But I discovered, courtesy of some of the staff on the PIDD, I might add, 
that the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency did precisely that. In 2016, they went from 65 guidebooks to one. Why? Well, they're the ones that were keeping the imagery from our fighters in Afghanistan, and they knew it. And they knew they were going to go out of business because you know what the fighters on, on the edge of battle were doing? They were buying commercial imagery. And so NGA realized they were going to go out of business if they couldn't lower some of the classifications to the level that you could share with foreigners. They did that by getting all of those guidebooks down to one. They then made very clear what the appeal process was and what the deadlines were. And they kept upgrading and adapting the guidebooks. Normally, you only do that once every five years. They were doing it five or more times a year. And they put deadlines on appeals, 30 days, not, I think my appeal's going on for six years. You know, so this is a model that others should follow. They are doing it for, for, for reasons of incentive, which is to say they want to stay in business. They want to move ahead. So I think we have the model. And I can tell you something else. All of the documents, and they keep mounting, and, and with electronic data, um, the, the numbers are literally astronomical. I'll leave it to you. I bet you you have the, the numbers right at your fingertip. They're in here. But they're measured in millions, minimum, if not more. Millions you know, terabytes, it's quite out of control. You're not going to get ahead of that unless you somehow automate. But you cannot automate if you have contradictory guidance. Last comment, and then I'll turn it over to the expert over here. I'm the amateur, the lover. You're the expert, you're the professional. I think we can come up with rules, executive orders, maybe legislation, although we, we can comment on this current state of play. I think both Ezra and myself know a little bit about what's going on, which is fun. You know, it's current events, stuff, so, but room it. But I don't think any of that will ever matter, even if we get these tools, which are not that easy to perfect. And I think we're making some really interesting progress with machine learning, artificial intelligence, being able to take guidebook strictures and finding a document, scanning it, saying, hey, here's an issue that's related to this particular guidance problem. Um, none of that is going to amount to hill beans unless the demand signal changes. And right now, the demand signal is for more clearances, more classified material, more hush-hush, more you can't see this, this is too sensitive. We are going to have to shift and I don't know how we're going to do it, to a country that understands that innovation is our best protection and that if we innovate, we can take more risks losing information. Our rate of innovation is too low. That's the reason we're overly secretive, I think. We need to stop thinking that everyone needs a clearance to do business with us. And we need to stop rewarding people for having clearances. There's somewhere between one and four million, depending on who you listen to, that have these things. One million is too many. Four million is absurd. So how we change that culture may start in places like this. Maybe you need to have a course that addresses overclassification. Huh? Ezra.
Thanks, Henry. Well, first of all, I just, you know, uh, thanks to the uh, Institute for World Politics for hosting this event. Um, I know it's a little bit in the weeds, but I'll, I'll uh, hopefully try to make it a little bit more colorful. And I, and I really want to thank uh, Henry and, and NPIC for putting together this study. Um, you know, uh, it's really important to have these outside perspectives. This is a problem that's going to be uh, hopefully solved in part through outside pressure. Um, and, uh, you know, the board is kind of the inside pressure, the uh, Public Interest Classification Board, but we, we can't do it alone. So we really, thanks, Henry. I, I really appreciate it. It's a fantastic study. Um, so let me, let me just first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first explain what the problem is. I'm going to tell you what the costs of the problems are, and then I'm going to give you some ideas on how to fix it. Uh, and, of course, I'm, you know, summarizing here. So I, I hope when we get to questions, you can ask me questions. I'll answer anything that I can answer. So... What's the problem? I think the, the, the issue is um, we have way too much classified information. Why do we have too much classified information? Um, first of all, it's really easy to produce classified information. Um, that's a problem. Um, and, you know, uh, anybody sitting at their desk essentially can produce, you know, in, in the intelligence community or even beyond the intelligence community. It's not just the intelligence community that produces classified information. It's the State Department. It's the Department of Defense. It's, uh, it's uh, the Department of Energy, uh, maybe even the Department of Agriculture. You know, where does it end, right? So it's very easy to produce classified info. And since the, the onset of the digital age, really early 2000s, end of the 1990s, when the government digitized, it's become even easier to produce classified information. Emails, right? I mean, you know, every time you send an email, that's a new piece of classified information derivative classification. And, and so the volume is growing and growing. And it's extremely expensive to store that classified information. The cost of storing a page of classified information, right, because the government's not allowed to really throw anything out ever. We have to save these documents uh, for you know, history's sake and, and oversight. There's a lot of good reasons for that. It's very expensive. It's, it's multiple times the cost to save a piece of classified information versus a page of unclassified information. Um, and so there's that, there's that cost. But the other costs are the societal costs, right? If, if, if all of this information is classified, it's really hard for the American public to know uh, what their government is doing. And why is that a bad thing? Well, if you don't know what your government's doing, it's really easy for people that perhaps have bad intentions to try to make something up about what the government's doing. And that's how you get all of these sorts of destructive conspiracy theories that are, that are floating out there that are frankly, you know, very harmful. They're not true, but because everything is shrouded in secrecy, it's very hard to kind of counter those conspiracy theories. Um, and so a healthy society has transparency. Another societal cost is uh, if, if somebody in the government uh, thinks that their actions will never see the public light of day, do you think they're more likely to, to do things that are right, or do you think they're less likely to do some things that are right? You know that you will never be, there's never a chance that your actions will face any sort of scrutiny. You know, um, not saying everybody in government's bad, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just talking about simple human nature and incentives. There's also economic costs. I talked a little bit about the cost to store a document. That's an economic cost of the taxpayer. But, you know, Henry mentioned the space industry. If, if you have to, uh, if defense contractors, as an example, have to produce uh, their product in a highly classified environment, that's very costly. 
Do you think that they eat that cost? Of course not. They pass that cost back to the government. And so it leads to an increase uh, in, in, in the procurement cost for all of these sorts of weapon systems, uh, which means less money. Frankly, there's, there's only so much money to go around. Um, so you're burning money on overclassification. And then there's national security costs, which Henry talked about, which is very real, which is our ability to share not just with our allies and partners, but even within the government. You know, how, how, how can we get extremely classified information? Uh, maybe it shouldn't be that classified, but how do we get information that's marked at a very high classification level out to the very edge of combat, right? Where we have troops that are, that are in combat and need to have that information. So it's not just about sharing with our allies and partners. And then, you know, so those are kind of some of the costs, and, and I'm happy to go into more of that. Now let me talk about what we see as the solutions, what the board sees as the solution. So I think from a legislative perspective, let me just start big picture. You have to change the incentive. So everything that, that I'm going to suggest is about how do you change the incentive. That is, why is it not in the incentive to over, uh, for, for people to overclassify things? How do, you, how do you actually have penalties for overclassification? Right now, if you underclassify something, you could lose your security clearance. You could even go to jail. But if you overclassify something, that is, if you go outside of what the rules say, there's no, there's no consequence. So there's no incentive. The incentives are stacked in such a way that people should always err on the side of overclassifying. And so I think we need to change that. So there's a few things that are going on right now. One is legislation. Um, you know, there are a number of legislative proposals up on the Hill. These are really important things. And frankly, the reason you're seeing an increased amount of legislation to reform, that are pushing for certain reforms to the classification system is because there's a, there's a lack of executive action. Um, and so legislation is basically blooming in this power, in this, in this power vacuum. Um, you know, we can talk about, if, if anybody has questions about why is the executive branch involved in this, why isn't this just something Congress, you know, has dealt with off the bat. Basic, I'm happy to answer those questions. Basically, at the bottom line of what you need to know is that the ability to classify something and declassify something is really seen as a core uh, executive power. That is, it's a, it's a presidential power to determine how information that has national security value is distributed and disseminated throughout the government or outside the government. That's, that's historically been seen as a, as a core presidential power. Um, there are also executive orders, and, and there are a number of potential executives. Many of the things here that I've described can be solved through executive orders. Um, and, uh, you know, there's security classification guides. I mean, Henry mentioned that. The key there is that I'll just give you kind of a, uh, an example. You have different agencies in the U.S. government that are classifying the same pieces of information at different levels. So how can that be? I mean, how can you go to CIA and they say one thing is top secret, but then you go to DIA and they say, oh, no, that's secret or even unclassified, right? Like, you know, something just doesn't make sense about that. And part of that is there just isn't a centralized, uh, uh, unfortunately, we've lost the kind of central control that we originally had. Again, all of this is delegated from the president. So it's actually in theory, very easy to regain and re-centralize that control. Um, and then, you know, technology is, is another solution, but technology really needs to come from, somebody needs to say, we're going to have a unified whole-of-government approach to solve this from a technological perspective. What are the technological solutions? 
I mentioned that records have boomed because of you know the government digitalization. Well, how are you going to go through all of that? We don't have enough people. The we don't have enough people even to do FOIA of unclassified information, right? I mean, you always hear about these FOIA backlogs. It took seven years for the government to respond to my FOIA for a 10-page document. So now you're talking about billions and billions of pages of records. Who is going to go through those? You know, after 25 years, a lot of these documents can be released, even ones that are legitimately classified. But somebody has to look at that document. So what does technology do? We're looking at, you know, the board is looking at machine learning, um, automated systems that can sift through these vast numbers of records and determine what can be released. Uh, everybody who has a smartphone, you know, you use Siri on, you, on your phone, you know that machine learning, machines are increasingly able to contextualize information and understand things. And so, Really, the government needs to decide that it needs to apply this to the classification problem. It's going to be way less expensive to do that than it's going to be to try to go through all these documents by hand or continue to store all these documents past when they don't need to be stored. Um, but technology isn't just applied to the records from a historical look-back perspective. The board is very interested in having the cre uh, technology applied at the creation, at the point of creation. So you have spell check in your word processor now. It tells you if a word's misspelled. We want to see a system that tells you if, if an analyst or somebody in the government has marked a paragraph as being top secret, no, no form, which means it can't be released to, class, uh, to foreign nationals. We want the computer to tell you no. Um, based on context, we know that that information in that paragraph is actually unclassified. You really shouldn't be classifying it the way you are. So that's, that's technology being applied on the front end to make sure that we're re also reducing the amount of classified information going forward. So that's, how we're, those are, that's the way technology can tackle it from both sides. So I'll just, that's, my, that's the general overview. More than happy to answer any questions. I'll just say this in closing. Um, the, there, there are, there's a lot of rhetoric on both sides. Um, a lot of people, and I don't mean politically right, left side of the aisle, but you've got really kind of the two camps on the extreme are, you know, uh, the U.S. Is, is, in, uh, is in this great power competition. We have to more than ever guard these secrets. Uh, and, and so we really actually need more classified information. And then on the other side, you have people that say everything should be unclassified. You know, the government should have no secrets. Um, um, and, uh, and I think that really uh, the, the, the real answer is somewhere in the middle. And, uh, and, 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 it, and but both sides feel, feel very strongly. Um, and, you know, I'll just say that one of the things that the board has really worked on uh, is, is trying to find that middle ground. Um, and, and I think we're beginning to have some progress in part through, uh, through, through, through outside groups like, like Henry's. So, um, yeah. yeah. Let me uh, pick up on something that you just said. Yeah. Well, you're supposed to ask questions. This is a mental institution. You express your honks by asking questions. Um, warfare, I think people who look backwards at history are mostly in the camp of, can we declassify as much as possible? 
Um, whereas I think the people who are looking forward are concerned about classifying things where revealing it will, will, will destroy a comparative advantage. And I get that. I think the middle ground, I guess I'm all in favor of those historians generally. I have a weakness for letting them have everything. But the, the people looking forward, I think the balance has to be struck this way. We need to start thinking more clearly about the nature of warfare and how it may be changing. And I, one of the chapters in here, I noticed I didn't put my name on it, so it must be good, uh, is entitled, uh, what, oh gosh, uh, why do we need a working group on classification? And I think the reason we need a working group, we need the IPB, we need the government, we need institutions like this to be thinking about this, is we have a model of warfare, strategic warfare, that pretty much is anchored in something 100 years old. It's called air warfare. And if you want to understand why we have a strategic weapons force and why we have someone with the power to press a button and probably wipe out at least 100 million people within minutes, it has to do with that theory of warfare. I'd like to think that we kind of are in a point where we can move to another form of warfare model. And that model, oddly enough, I hate to say it, has been articulated by the Russians first. It's called new generation warfare. And in a rough way, we're seeing this play out in the Ukraine war. If this, what, what, what this theory of warfare argues is that you can disable countries without threatening or actually decimating physically the capital itself, the military capital, the financial capital, and the, and the industrial capital of a country. That you can win without physically obliterating that or threatening to do so. Now, in that kind of warfare, you have to use open source intelligence, information campaigns, lots of data, even for kinetic warfare, and you're going to have to take more risks to share more information with more actors. What used to be protectorates in the Cold War are going to have to be treated more like equals. Australia, Japan, South Korea, Ukraine, NATO. In that environment, you're going to have to develop a sense of humor about what you should be sharing, and it should be a more generous sense of That's the balance. Figuring out what you need to share and what you shouldn't share to win at a new mode of warfare. Uh, I don't think we're thinking enough about that. Yeah, I, I think that, Henry, that's a great point. And, um, you know, I, uh, you know, one of my, um, uh, one, one of the things that I uh, oversaw in government um, during my last time in government was uh, uh, DOD information operations. And, um, 
you know, we really are, I mean, it's, it's a catchy term, it's kind of cliche, people say we're in the information age, whatever, information warfare, the age of information warfare. I mean, it's true. Uh, and and uh, there is so much um, uh, that comes down to um, uh, dealing with the perceptions uh, of our adversaries uh, and, and really, uh, frankly, avoiding war, avoiding war. Uh, that's what we want to do. We, we don't want to have a war. Uh, we certainly don't want to have a war in Asia. And that really comes down to making sure that, um, um, to managing perceptions. Uh, and, and I'll just say that, uh, that you know, that's another cost, uh, frankly, of, of over-secrecy. Is that, uh, and this, is, this has obviously been the case since the Cold War, right? You, you, you never want to, um, the messaging is so important. Um, and if there's a misunderstanding, uh, a misunderstanding can lead to war. Um, and, and sometimes an, an over-secrecy uh, can lead to war, right? Because the other side just misunderstands an action you're taking. Or maybe they misunderstand what a weapon system is supposed to be doing. Um, they misunderstand, uh, you know, what is this constellation of satellites that the U.S. has launched? Um, you know, is this an attempt to try to uh, take a preemptive action against us. So we actually need to preempt the preemption. And, and, and you end up in an escalation that is really born out of, frankly, somebody looking to protect a program in the Pentagon from congressional oversight because they want to make sure that their budget is protected. You know, they don't want somebody else coming in and raiding their budget. The next thing you know, you're, you're causing an international escalation. And that, that's actually a very real thing. That's not just like a scenario I just made up sitting here today. So you're so right. We have to be able to choose the proper pieces of information to release and declassify to ensure that we don't have, uh, that we lessen the chance of an international miscalculation. Well, the other thing is this institution was built by our founder here. You're the founder, Dr. Lynch. Uh, I've taught here, what, 30 years? Yeah, a lot. My impression is that one of the things you were very keen on is trying to develop the possibility of what the Chinese call smokeless victories. And roughly that smokeless victory comes if you can keep the other fellow busy with their problems so they're not creating problems for you. That requires keeping their population aware of the things they need to fix at home. Not easy, you know, the whole idea of Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, all these forms of uh, information sharing, it's not just the warfare, get to being able to use open source intelligence to, to help the people in these countries understand what they ought to be focused on. And it's probably closer to down the street than it is somewhere outside of their that kind of warfare requires taking more risks to release. More what? Being willing to take more risks to release information. You saw it, I mean, people have different views of this administration, how well it's administering the war in Ukraine. But I don't know too many critics of their initial effort to let everyone know that the invasion was coming. This stuff is the unknown, unknown. You invent something. Say again. 
if there's an unknown unknown, you make up a scenario that you think solves that problem. Even in artificial intelligence, the biggest problem is when it hallucinates something it doesn't know. It like, creates a, a source that answers a question that doesn't exist. This is one of the problems with AI now. And when, when, when um, the Secretary of Defense, Rumsfeld, was talking about why we needed to invade a place, it was because of the unknown unknown. They invent what it takes I, I, to I respond to that. It, it sounds like a bad idea to invent something, to invade somebody. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like something I'm totally on board with. Well, let, 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 me, I, let, me, let me give you, I think, another example that speaks to what you're saying, which is, uh, in a vacuum, you yeah, right. right. So, and this is what I was talking about with conspiracy theories. But, but you know, during uh, during the you know early days of uh, of the COVID pandemic, uh, the 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 Chinese government was using um, the pandemic to try to undermine uh, the U.S. U.S.'s relationship with our allies in in the um, in the Pacific, um, and also the you know the Chinese government was pumping out a very large amount of uh, uh, misinformation, disinformation on um, social media, uh, even US social media, uh, all sorts of crazy things about COVID. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of stories I'm sure people saw about, you know, uh, the Chinese were putting out that the US wasn't sending uh, COVID aid, wasn't sending PPE, we were withholding PPE from our allies in the Pacific. They were, that was all done intentionally to try to um, undercut the U.S. long term with these allies. It's all part of their, you know, their plan to essentially the Chinese plan to take over the Pacific. The, the, um, but why? You know, the U.S. We we were we we really struggled to counter that um, because you know it's really hard to counter misinformation. If you're afraid to label it uh, as part of a, a Chinese-backed government plan, uh, if you're not comfortable releasing certain pieces of information, you know, you really, the best way to counter these false narratives is with true information. But but if somebody is saying that that true information is classified, even when it's really not, you, you, it, it hurts the U.S. government's ability to respond. And I think that's what you're talking about. This is a perfect example of uh, uh, an absence of information being seized upon by our enemies to try to undermine uh, uh, our allies, uh, and and you know I, I think that that was I think COVID was really um, a wake up call and uh, what happened with COVID and I and I, and I think uh, um, you know uh, people now understand that uh, uh, that we really have to be like Henry was saying more willing to release more to try to to, to own the information space. I don't know if there are any other questions, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You've opened a lot of topics. Um, I'm Paul Kerwin. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. Uh, going back to uh, the beginning about overclassification, how many classifiers, people that have original classification authority, are there in the government? Because everybody else is derivative after that. 
1,400 was one number. Well, well no, 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 actually, what, what you said was interesting. So there's one original classifier, which is the president. There you go. Okay, everybody else is derived from that. There you go. Right? So, right, so, you know, he's delegated his, he has delegated down, the president, has he or she, uh, has delegated down uh, their, uh, you know, responsibility to determine what's classified and what isn't, and they've, they've, they've basically spread that down to everybody else. Yes. So they, even the original classifiers, that's, a, that's derived from somewhere, and that's one person. Uh, there are 1,400, but it, but it changes constantly, because the problem with the delegation is, uh, the, the president, the, the language uh, de delegating from the president in many of these cases doesn't say, I'm delegating it to you and you can't delegate it to anybody else. It's, I'm delegating it to you. Well, oh, okay, you didn't say I couldn't delegate it. Now I'm going to delegate it to 10 people, and they're going to delegate it to 10 people, and they're going to delegate it to 10 people. The next thing you know, you end up with this constantly shifting thing. I think one of the things that you need to see in an executive order is pulling back these delegations and putting restrictions, much more stringent restrictions, on who can receive a delegation that traces its way back to the president. To give you some idea how bad it was, I had delegated authority, and I was just a, a deputy assistant secretary level official. If you take a look now at how many deputy assistant secretaries there are in this government, it's a frighteningly large number. Now, maybe we need to get rid of them, too, but, you know, the point I'm trying to get at is the same point that Ezra raised. It's a pretty big number, and it, it's hard to know when it stops. And so the, the responsibility evaporates when that situation occurs. Um, also, uh, I mean, I remember in one instance uh, there was a document produced, uh, very high classification level, and it was just technically dead wrong. I contacted the head of the DIA and persuaded him that he wanted to pick up all those reports because it had a fundamental error in it. 500 people saw that. And I was thinking, why? What in the world? Why 500? Now, I'm sure that number would be a multiple now. That was 30 years ago. So uh, there's a certain make-work quality to this kind of industry. There's a, there's a fundamental problem, too, with records that aren't preserved for one reason or another. I remember the National Archive where would, would encourage agencies to dispose of records because yeah. they had the limited amount of space and they would only say they kept 0.01%. And they went screaming and kicking into having to preserve electronic records. Email in the federal and the presidential records were not considered uh, records until they were printed out and put into the central secretary, central keeping system. And what, what exposed it for them was when they were running a covert operation on a, an email system that was residing on a mainframe computer in the White House, the profs, professional office system, running a covert operation in Iran and Nicaragua, selling Defense Department material. You're reassuring me that someone was keeping that much track. Um, and, they, and, and as soon as they were uh, exposed, yeah. someone fell out of an airplane in Nicaragua, <laughs> Hassan Fuss, right. 
they, they went and they destroyed all of the records they could find and just put in well, manufactured records. You're so, raising a good point. So how, uh, how do you know you're deserving all of the records? Okay, look, you're raising yet another reason why what Ezra is talking about, which is having a central tracking system, which we do not have now, is so important. And I will agree with you. I had an office, and all I did, and the 15 people, or eight people, depending on the year, under me would do is read code word stuff and try to figure out how to apply it and write memos. I'm pretty sure I was told that everything for the four years I was in that office was just burned. I mean, some of it I thought was interesting, but you don't have to worry about it. It's gone. I think that's a basic problem, too. And the reason why is when you read the founding documents, they more or less are banking on a lot of vulgar calculations to keep us from swallowing each other whole. And one is that first people will want to make money, and that will get them into government. And then they'll want to get power once they've gotten some money. And then they'll actually want to have a place in history. Now, we'll see about that. But if you do not keep any of the records, they will get a place in history without earning it. And they will know that no one will call their bluff about lying about it. And I think that's kind of dangerous. So I'm not for burning so much. I get your point. And that's the reason why we need to take seriously the automation, that then forces you into rationalizing the guidance. And oh, by the way, overall, it probably means classifying a whole heck of a lot less and at lower levels. And, and so there's a kind of a virtuous cycle we need to get people to have a taste for and start demanding. Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, the vast majority of uh, well, the archives is saving a lot of information. Um, I think that what we saw, one of the things that the board has been very involved in, and, and uh, uh, we've, we've gotten a lot of help from President Biden, who has um, really also uh, taken this up as an important issue. You, you look at the Kennedy records, um, and, and there's a vast number of records um, from the Kennedy assassination files that are still classified. A large, we did, we've been making progress. Um, but those are coming out you know, 20 years after they should have come out. And what does that do? I mean, it's just going to make people naturally think, oh, the government must be hiding something. You know, we had a situation where we released the records. Uh, the, the president uh, released a large number of the records. And you know, immediately we started seeing people saying, well, there's certain records that are, have been modified or, or certain things were destroyed. The real things aren't coming out. Now, by the way, a lot of that's not true. But it's a totally understandable thing to think if you've been hiding it 20 years longer than you have to be. It almost makes it seem like something nefarious was going on. Um, so the government's saving a lot. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I would just say that I think that, you know, we're going to see uh, through, through metadata and a lot of advancements um, things that should help assure the public that the document, one, that the document that they're seeing uh, was, uh, is actually the original document. It hasn't been modified. Um, but also uh, that, that you know, through technology we're going to see less fear about um, uh, uh, d destruction. 
But, you know, that doesn't stop. Nothing will ever be foolproof. Nothing will ever stop a bad actor from destroying something. I think a perfect example is, you know, Gina Haspel, a former CIA director who was involved in the really unfortunate uh, destruction of a key record around the torture program. Uh, and it's extremely unfortunate that she was, that she destroyed that record. Uh, that type of thing is always going to undercut public trust in our institutions. So you can't stop every bad actor, but I think technology is, is going to make it a lot harder. Uh, the Lord doesn't support that, being, being that the archive instructs people to preserve records that you create, whereas the definition of a record is something used in the process of governing. So, so the discretion of someone creating a desk file and then deciding after their term is up or after a month is up, what's, what's to be sent to be preserved is still a decision that's made by the originator. Even though those records were used in the process of governing, they want the archive wants to will it, will it, will it down to the, to the essentials. But it, it leaves a lot of room for material to just not get preserved at all. Do you have another question, or is there any, uh, see some other students? These students need to ask questions. <laughs> we have a there we go. We have an elder student. Uh, I, I wanted to ask uh, you gentlemen um, what you think about the duration of time that classified documents should remain classified. Uh, what's a safe period and does it depend upon the technology that was used to collect it, or does it depend upon the content of the report, uh, where it may talk about certain, you know, certain individuals in foreign countries and what their behavior is and what we're trying to do with them, etc. I mean, there are different kinds of things that can be compromised with the release of, of classified documents, and I'm wondering what your thinking is on this. Let me, let me make a mistake, because <laughs> I think that's all you can do to answer that question. You're never going to get it perfect. It's not a technical question. It's not right. The first thing I started to, to think about was uh, how Churchill protected the royalty from all their shenanigans with Hitler by keeping certain people in towers incommunicado with the press until they died. Yeah? I'm not sure he was wrong. <laughs> because that country depended on people believing in the elite, for better or worse. And that was an insane amount of time. Yeah? Luckily, I'd like to think we don't have that problem here. I think in the United States, we have grown used to yelling at one another saying outrageous things, and therefore the amount of damage information from our government can do is a lot less than it is in places where people can't yell at one another. So I'd like to say that in this country we have a comparative advantage where we can take more risks than the people who actually I think are our enemies. And we need to start playing to that advantage. We need to increase the rate of innovation. We need to work with others better, which I think we can do. 
compared to our adversaries. And that should make it easier to have fewer very highly classified items that are only shared, I hope, with many fewer people, and flood the market of information to confuse the heck out of our adversaries. We need to go in that direction. I think what happened after the Cold War, and I'm speculating, is that the spending and the innovation rates for weaponry and covert programs and the rest went way down. So the spending went down, the number of programs went down, and so the desire to protect them went up. And that worked when we didn't have very much in the way of adversaries after the Cold War, and we didn't. Well, that's changed. We have to figure out how to leverage the most innovative sectors of our economy and our allied relationships now. And I think that's going to require fewer things being classified as highly as they currently are, not more. That's a cultural answer I just gave you, but that's the best I can do. And so the time limits, you know, I, I'm all for anything you can get at, I, but generally, uh, I, I don't think the idea that 50 years is, is somehow a risky thing. Yeah, so I, I think um, I'll just, to, to what you're really talking about is mandatory declassification. Um, and that is, there's just, you know, there's a point of time at which this information shouldn't be classified anymore. Again, I'm going to go off the assumption that the information should have been classified to begin with. That, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of, like I said before, there are things that should have never been classified. But let's, let's take, let's assume that it was properly classified. What is kind of that expiration date? And, you know, the, the legislation that's, that's uh, come out, that's been announced uh, uh, by um, a bipartisan group of senators, has several things that address this. Um, the, the key is, how is it implemented? And a lot of this comes down to context. Um, where we are right now is, uh, the government's position is that if something is going to be released, declassified and released, a human needs to uh, look at it, needs to have a human review. As I've told you, with the huge volume of records, uh, that's really labor-intensive. Uh, and it's going to start getting worse, because if you look at what was 25 years ago is really when the government um, uh, uh, digitized. So, the, so and, and because the mandatory review is at 25 years, the system's going to get very overwhelmed here in the next couple of years. So I think that, obviously, I'm not suggesting, and I, and I think we understand that, that, you know, as automated technologies come out, we're still going to need to have to have a human in the loop. It's not that the, that the machine, uh, the, the algorithms are just going to be able to automatically say, okay, we did the 25-year review, and, and this doesn't really need to be classified anymore, and it's out, public. We're still going to need to have a human in the loop, but the machine is going to cut down on a lot of the work. And so when the person is looking at the document, they'll be able to say, okay, great, I checked it against these things, some of this information has already been released, uh, you know, and, and, and then we'll save time. Ultimately, sure, maybe 20 years from now it will be totally automated. You won't have to have a human look at it, but, but we're not there yet. This really comes down to uh, a contextual judgment 
Um, and right now, we don't have any algorithms that have the proper amount of context to make that decision. This is a critical point. Last I checked, um, I get to teach at different places. Just leave it at that, not just here. It'd be nice if somebody read a bit more and that they were in the government and they knew some history. That context cannot be probably programmed. That context requires historical judgment. That requires someone to teach history and someone to understand what important history is. That is going away as well. And I think uh, you know projects at the one percent schools on critical history. That should be the model. Lesser schools follow, and uh, you know, it's not quite yet taken off. Because in the government, they have to then go. Well, what's the context? And if you take a look, the State Department has a wonderful group of people. I think they're fantastic. Actually, they're not just above average. You need to keep filling the, that stock with you know, able historians, and you need more of them. Um, that's for sure. And Dr. Lynchowski, this will be the, the final question of the Q&A. Does anybody else want to ask one? Uh, we are coming up on okay. it's a little past six, but if you guys have questions for the panel, so, so just, just real quick question. Do you think that countries like China that are much more closed societies have this problem and that it affects their the level of their innovation uh, compared to us. You know, we have tremendous innovation cap capabilities in this country because of the ability of people in one part of the country to be in touch with those far away who are working in a, in a similar field and, and to have remarkable cross-fertilization and, uh, you know, and, and of course we have other advantages like the protection of intellectual property and a good incentive system and so on and so forth. But, um, to, you know, to what extent do you think our intelligence community has figured out what the impediments are in a country like China or Russia which doesn't have the same level of openness and, uh, and, and tries to keep everything extraordinarily secret themselves. Well, uh, I think when it comes to governance, you're on point. There is not, it is not necessarily as high a trust society as, as even ours, which is becoming more distrustful and cynical. Uh, their toleration for dissent is open. Is, is not very high. But I think some bad news. There was this comfortable idea that the Chinese don't know how to innovate technically, and that their patent numbers are down, and that their quality assurance is very low. I would encourage you to take a look at the industry's review of the electric vehicle industry. Uh, that ship is, I think, sailed. Uh, I think their quality assurance, even in the consumer areas, is pretty high. And I got to believe in priority areas like the military, we can no longer assume that they are technically